What's up, my self-improver? It is Brian Ford with Self-Improvement Daily. Take ownership of your personal development one tip at a time. And get ready because it's time for a self-improvement sit-down. In these self-improvement sit-down episodes, I take the time to speak in detail with industry leaders who are experts at their craft. We cover topics that can't possibly be covered in the weekday, two-minute episodes I usually share here on the podcast. Don't worry, I'll be back with another self-improvement tip tomorrow. But as for now, let's jump into this interview. This is self-improvement sit-down number 40 with Janine Letford. And we are live. Today's guest is Janine Letford. Janine is the best-selling author of the book, From Debt to Destiny, where she recounts her own financial struggles and shares the baseline knowledge and action steps that she took to get out of debt. She's also an award-winning educator, a global speaker, and a top trainer on creative thinking. Janine is the founder of Cafe Strategies, where she works with executives and employees to help reignite creativity and financial agility in our workforce. And above all else, she has a really good heart and is making the world a better place through her nonprofit work and her career. Janine, it is so great to chat with you. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) <laughs> All right. You got, a, you got a heck of a story. So I'd love to jump right into it. No sugarcoating, no nothing. I know you're straight to the point kind of gal. So I think your history and kind of the general conversation around financial literacy and financial management is unfortunately a taboo topic that you've been able to really kind of provide a little bit more awareness into. And like I said, your story is very powerful, you know, from being in debt, significant debt and kind of climbing your way out of it. Your book does a great job of describing that. But beyond that, and some of those points, Could you tell us some of the misconceptions that people in general have when it comes to managing finances and how we can be more responsible with our spending and with our financial habits? Yes, the first thing, my background is in psychology. So I don't think people really understand how much your psychology is connected to your money. It's not just dollar bills. It's really the identity. You know, it's not just income, I say. It's not just income, it's the identity, and it's not just debt. You're dealing with your destiny and the destiny of your children, your children's children, your generational effects. So that's the first thing I want people to understand, that there's money connected to so many areas of your life. But it starts with who you think you are and who you believe that you want to be. Mm, Beautiful. And then, so if that's kind of the first misconception then, so it's like connecting the psychology directly to it. How is that displayed in people's lives and kind of causing them to make some of the wrong decisions? Well, I think that we don't take enough time. Number one, you know, my background is in K-12 education. I think that's a huge injustice that we don't take the time to educate our kids within the system that most of them go through. Mm -hmm. I of course, in a perfect world, we want to make sure the family structure has a good way of talking to kids about money and everything. But you and I know that's not the case. A few families do that. Most families don't. And a lot of parents think it's taboo. And the thing is, children solidify their money mindset about the age from 10 to 12. Mm. So if you're not having conversations about you know, what value is, what work is, how money is, how to save it, um, you know, how to have that delayed gratification and, and how to give generously, which I know you and your programs are about, how to really share the wealth and share the social capital, um, financial capital and creative capital with others who may not be as fortunate. 
those conversations, my child is two years old, we're having those conversations now because he's building into the man who he's going to be. So I think that's really important that our family structure has it, but our K-12 has it integrated within the curriculum from five years old to 18. We should not be graduating children into their adult work life with no financial education at all. Yeah, no, I've, I've heard that argument a lot and I'm totally on that side of it where the education system needs to prepare for real life skills versus just memorize and repeat kind of, um, sure, I mean, strategies, but ultimately it's not as important as some of the real life skills that kids need. So that, that's awesome that you're kind of really intelligent like really intentionally kind of bridging that gap in the way that you are operating. And I, I think it's a, uh, it's a wave, you know, you're part of a wave of a lot of people that are prioritizing that. So I think that's extremely important. And in that point too, about, um, you know, everything is learned and money mindset is no different. You know, if you grow up in a certain background or with kind of certain cultural expectations, like there is just so much that really, uh, I mean, in your book, you call it like blueprints. Like there's so many blueprints and scripts that you run off of that are extremely influential in the decisions and like the thought patterns that you end up having. So really, really important. Yeah, of course, to have those conversations. And what's interesting is because you potentially were a byproduct of the wrong side of that, right? Like some of the negative conversations, maybe your, your family background, I love to touch on it, but you know, of course there was, there was stuff that happened that got you to a point of, you know, on the ground, credit card bills and student loans um, piling up, right? And, you know, you just kind of reached your, your personal D-Day, which is your decision day when you wanted to reclaim your financial freedom. Could you tell us about kind of the context of how you got to that point and what you discovered and learned and committed to in that moment? Sure. So my background, I am from a four child home, single parent home. We were on free and produced lunch, you know, growing up. So we weren't like I say, we weren't dirt poor, but we were dusty, you know, <laughs> so, you know, we, we, you know, we didn't have to have the new shoes coming out or whatever, but my mom was an educator herself. So she was raising four kids. She understood finances like paying bills, but as far as growing wealth, you know, those are two completely different things. One, they're both important, but they're, they're two parts of underneath the umbrella of financial literacy. So I played by the rules. I was a good, good kid, you know, never got in trouble, didn't get suspended or whatever, and worked hard, got de de decent grades, B, Bs or so, and went to UCLA. It's funny how, how we have 18-year-olds sign these massive contracts that affect the rest, you know, the next 30 years of their life, but I did that as well, called the student loan debt, and I graduated from UCLA. Then I found myself as a 30-year-old in $100,000 worth of debt and not knowing how I got there because I was told you go to school, you get your education, life will be great. What is this American dream that we're all going after, right? And I realized at 30, I, it was an American nightmare because just wow. couldn't keep up. And I went into education, which when I know for the amount of education that we need, there's extra degrees or extra certifications past the BA or BS. Um, you know, it costs money, but our income isn't isn't as equal as the amount of education we need as opposed to a doctor, a lawyer, or other professions who get mm -hmm. high, more highly comp compensated. So yeah, that was my D-Day. I was on the floor with the student loan bill in one hand and a huge massive credit card bill in the other, just crying out like what happened? What, what turn did I miss? And I talk about that in my TED talk. And that's when I was just like, something has gone wrong. I remember my aunt gave me some random book and I just threw it in the library it was called The Money Makeover by Dave Ramsey. I mm. ran and got that book, read it in like a day. And I remember sitting there holding that book in my hand saying, why am I a 30 year old UCLA graduate, graduate 
and I don't know this basic information. I, I felt like someone punched me in the stomach or someone was like, ha ha, we got you. Yeah. You know, and, and just that was the turning point. So I just read every book I could, went online, got all this information and then just sat down and wrote out the plan. And that's the beginning of the journey because, because I'm an educator and I have that ed education mindset and that men mentor mindset, I was like, I can't just keep this to, to my, myself. Now that we're on a better path and we're getting out of this dead, we know actually what's going on, right? I, I was a UCLA graduate, didn't even know how credit cards work. I mean, that's how serious, <laughs> and mm -hmm. I'm okay with saying that. I think that's what empowers folks is, is I'm okay with saying, yeah, I was ignorant in this area. Like, I'm not gonna try to hide, hide it. And I think people, and that's another issue with the money psychology, we're just very ashamed it brings a lot, a lot of shame to people of like, oh, yeah, I have all this debt or the fact that I was driving a 1999 Nissan Sentra where the hood looked like it had like leprosy and like the bumper was taped on with like masking tape. <laughs> Here I am, the 2010 Great American Teacher of the Year driving around this car. But because I had the knowledge now of knowing how vehicles work and they depreciate and if you're trying to get out of debt, you don't want to add more car payments to your thing, you know, just stuff like that. I had to delay gratification. Now I'm in a Kia, a nice Kia Optima, by the way. Let me just throw that out there. But, you know, either if, if I was still in my car, that, that's okay, because I had to really relearn and reshape my relationship with money. And I realized that I was in a relationship with money. So we got out of the debt. We worked hard. The video's on YouTube. Just type in my name and debt-free, and you'll see me paying my last student loan bill. Awesome. When you think about it, I started my adult life in debt in sla slavery, which, you know, they, they say, because the word debt is connected to the word death and the word mortgage is connected to the word more. It, they have the same root, root word wow. because you're owing part of your life and part of your future time to this institution. So mm -hmm. I, we just worked it out, but in the middle of me paying off the debt, I realized I had to teach other people. And that's what, that was the impetus of Alumni 360, the nonprofit that I started around 2014 where I like had a vision of my students on this conveyor belt into a pit of debt, hmm. into a pit of where I was and no one warned me. And so I was like, I can't learn all this stuff and not warn the next generation. I'm doing this. I'm, I'm doing the same thing that, that people unknowingly did to me. And we just got together. I got together a whole bunch of kids who graduated from the elementary school that I was currently teaching at. They're like, you know, middle school, high school, maybe one or two graduates, different age levels. But I just got them together and said, here's my story. Here's the debt I'm paying off. It's not that I don't want you guys to go to college and sign up for student loans because a lot of you guys might have to make that decision. I just want you to be aware of what you're getting into beforehand. And it's mm -hmm. not going to slap you in the face and you're 25. Yeah. That, I mean, that's an incredible story. And I love how you've kind of taken the role of the educator beyond already being the educator, you know? And, and I think what stands out to me about that is you did absolutely nothing wrong. Like you did nothing wrong. You were, you were trusting people, you were trusting the system, you're going through it. And then you just found yourself left, you know, behind basically with all of this debt. And that's, that's something that's so unfair. And how were you to know that that was going to happen? You weren't, mm -hmm. right? And that's why you went about creating a solution so that other people wouldn't fall into that same trap. I think that's, I think it's so powerful to like really see that example of how like this system or society in some sense mm -hmm. is, uh, is flawed and doesn't necessarily create the right opportunities for the right people. So that's, thank you for sharing. It's a really, yeah, it's a really compelling story for sure. Um, if I could jump in just one point off of that, and uh, this may be a little bit con controversial, so, you know, that's why uh -oh. I don't know. <laughs> because just because I think 
you know, if you look at the history and, and if you look at this year, 2020, there's going to be a huge shift in the way we interact with universities, the tuition. If you look at how tuition was increased, I, I was in college in 1997, how much the tuition has increased from my mom's generation to my generation onward. And if you look at where it happened, it happened predominantly when they had a lot of movements during the civil rights movements and the OP movement where they were trying to get more people of color in, more women in. So once colleges got more colored, quote unquote, and more female, quote unquote, less aid started coming in from the state and federal aid and more of the responsibility laid on the actual stu student. Oh. And, and just, and that's when you saw loans like just shoot up in my generation, those folks born, um, you know, late seventies and in the eighties got the brunt of that. But going forward, colleges are, as you see, like are going to get hit hard because people are really reconsidering is a hundred thousand dollars worth for a BA degree worth it. And if I'm only, especially if you're going into education, you're only making 50 grand a year. You know, you really have to think about that. And are there alternate ways and so the last quote that, that I um, mentioned is, I say college is not for everyone, but higher learning is. Mm -hmm. So if you're going into a field that needs a degree, yes, but also look at your other opportunities or look at doing two years at home at a community college and then transferring. I want kids to just be really informed about all the routes now. There's huge companies like Google and Apple and other huge companies that are not even requiring a college degree. They are instituting their own training programs on site for 18 year olds coming in, they prefer you know how to communicate, you have critical thinking skills, you have creativity thinking skills, and you have those soft skills. That's what they, that's where they can't train you because those are things that are trained earlier on throughout life. Mm -hmm. But yeah, times are changing. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, you make a good point. Yeah, I mean, that's a very interesting observation about kind of the correlation between diversity in the college system and governmental support. I'll have to do some research on that. And I think that is, you know, just kind of like in the name of the way that things are changing. And that's only one way that education is being affected because there's this traditional route to get a job and kind of that is the structure, that is the story. Unfortunately, you kind of were on the wrong end of that, but that's still a story that a lot of people are going through. And that story is continuing because of the way that technology is absolutely booming. Um, you know, like automation is coming in and jobs are being replaced. And kind of the way that I see it is, um, you know, when it when these kind of basic tasks are going to be performed by these various technologies that are emerging, what is left for the human to do? And even the way that you described the way that people can get creative with their financial literacy and getting, you know, funding and different support in that way, people can also get creative about what value they have to offer. And I think that creative angle is being creative itself. It's the problem solving and the critical thinking and everything. And, you know, and I think that's something that obviously, you know, a lot about and we, let's talk, let's talk about it now because there really is this new era of like, what is a human's role in business? And it's, it's to do that higher level processing that, you know, some of these automated technologies might, might not be able to do. Um, so just in general, you know, as you've seen throughout your career and what you envision for the future, what role does creativity play in our lives, whether it's professional or relationships, et cetera? I mean, there's got to be a bunch of different applications. Yes. And once again, I learned from my own experience. So what happened was when I was getting out of debt, I, I call them my diamonds. I had to look again at my talents and my gifts and mm -hmm. the things that I was good at and reframe them. And 
So because that those were extra ways that I could bring in, in income. So I had to get creative about how I could increase the amount of income coming to my home. And that was the, epif the epiphany with the tagline that I use a lot, that my creative health affected my financial wealth. So mm -hmm. I tell people, your creative health affects your financial wealth. It's connected. And the ability to create value out of nothing, right? Value just from your ideas is a critical, especially right now, ability. When you think about 2020 and the pandemic, millions of people lost their job and they do not have the creative muscle. They weren't trained to think that way, entrepreneurially and creatively, to start producing value out of nothing because their way, their formula of getting a job and expecting an employer to take care of me if I do this function day after day, that was off the table. So for them to go home and just sit and say, okay, well, what can I do? What can I create? Do I have the tools and the procedure to bring it out to market? What does that look like? They, they're not thinking that. So as far as creativity in the workplace, you mentioned like the low level jobs, AI, and I did, I was a, a consultant, um, an educational consultant for the PWC Access Your Potential Initiative. And they took a live robot as tall as me in the classrooms and they travel around the country just to get kids excited about where technology is going. Mm. So they call it the, ascent, the essential eight, right? Um, AI, AR, um, drones, internet of things, you know, just um, all, all these, just the main eight, right? of essential technologies that are looking to shift the work workforce. Mm. And people normally think that, yeah, it's the lower level, it's the cashiers, it's the bank tellers, but there's a great book called Hustle and Float. You might wanna check this out. It's really good. It talks about where the future of work is going. But she said, you know, it's not just blue collar jobs, it's white collar jobs too. You have AI machine learning that could do what a writer does. You know, you have AI machine learn, um, learning that could do what lawyers do. They can read briefs faster. They can find patterns fast, faster. So it's almost like the AI can take over, you know, all these jobs. And it's not really taking over. How do we co-create with them? You know, how does AR make, AI make us even more creative so we can go to the next level and we're standing upon what they can do faster for, for us? But the creativity aspect that ability to combine and recombine ideas, that ability to reframe, that ability to have perspective agility, that ability, I'm doing a talk on tomorrow about observation. We're not observing our surroundings. We're not looking, we're not hearing, we're not tasting and smelling and touching different parts of our environment to get data and information that we can combine. We're, mm. you know, we're already at a deficit because there's sounds we can't hear there's things we can't see on the visual spectrum so the fact that we're already doling our senses even more so creativity development creativity training i believe is the next huge wave and i'm on the front of that wave with my work my books my programs because the true childlike genius that's where we need to get back to if you look at children and how they think, how they interact with stimuli, how they engage with different perspective and how they use their imagination to forethink. We all had that ability, but because of cultures, because of systems and because of just mindsets, we got educated out of it. Mm. So my job and what I'm training people to do is to get back to that childlike position so we can get the ideas that we need to move this nation and to move this world forward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're touching on something I've been thinking a lot about probably, I think it's been about two months. I had Garen Jones on the podcast and he talks a lot about your inner child and how 
there is this unique thing that is just part like it's a hard drive almost and you just like have this hard drive that you're born with it's your creativity it's your genius it's your expertise mm -hmm. it's your joy mm -hmm. and there's this little element that we all have but then we learn and imprint all these things on top of it and we lose sight of what that originally was and there's so much value in being able to engage and activate and tap into that because there's just a breadth of you like your unique potential your unique expression is is embedded in all of that but now it's being covered by all the teachings and learnings and the associations and generalizations that we're exposed to it's uh so it's sad but that that's amazing that you're it sounds like you're kind of developing curriculum around actually helping people um i guess you know adults can apply it to themselves but also kids to make sure that they retain that nugget that core spirit of what they're able to do um you know and you're doing that through education and i think i, I think that's a great example I'd, I'd love to ask you if there are a few yeah are there a few examples of how you as an educator are effective in teaching creativity right because creativity is such a abstract kind of concept and it's something that you can tap into that we all have it's kind of like a well but in order to access it, you need to get really smart about how to, how to basically put people in that space to be able to grow that skill. So what, what have you found has been effective in helping people to be more creative? Sure, sure. Well, as of right now, I was an educator in the classroom. I'm now a, a corporate trainer. So now I do mostly work with adults and the goal is to get them back into that, that mind, mindset. So what we do is first we look at what creativity is. So there's a lot of, there's a misconception that creativity is only artistry, right? And that in order to be creative, you have to be a professional artist. So you have millions of people walking around thinking they're not creative because they're not excellent in the arts. Hmm. So first we have to dispel that myth. Artistry is a part of creativity and artistry can help you in your creative thinking abilities in non-artist areas. So if you are a CEO, learning how to paint helps you because you're able to see detail you're able to see the nuances in a two-dimensional surf surface if you are a lawyer learning how to choreograph a dance can help you because it is helping you when you have one idea and you transform it into another idea communicating that same concept hmm. so what i do is i look at first of all the myths of creativity and dealing with that mindset block number two i look at what creativity is and so there's several studies that talk about how highly creative thinkers i mean your top two percent think thinkers they have a certain characteristic that they exhibit they're highly curious right they're their childlike connection again perspective is really they can really move per perspective um, their observational skills are really acute and that's why i do training and observation like looking at basic mundane things in a whole new way because that's really where that great ideas are you really looking at something you've seen ten thousand times in a new way and they are able to abstract you know i, I have my 16 my 16 diamond tools of creative thinking that's where i lay out some of these strategies um, that people can really start imploring so those are a few areas they're able to metaphorically think well mm -hmm. so we went through metaphors in fourth grade that's a fourth grade standard in california but how do you bring that task back up into your life so when you look like when my take my two-year-old on a walk we look at trees and he sees the bark and i say okay well that's bark normally we stop there right we just label things but what's the function of the bark it protects the tree and then as he gets older, I say, okay, well, how is your dad like the bark? Oh, my dad protects my family like the bark protects the tree. You see mm. that? There's, there's your creative, your creative tools, 
because now when you know how to metaphorically think, you can do that within your business. You can do that within your strategies. You know, okay, well, let's really compare this to a river. How is X, Y, and Z like a, a river? And it really exposes you to other areas that you were blinded to before. And that's really what we want to try to get people to do is to look at things in a new way and really uncover. The word discover means to uncover something, right? Yeah. Uncover these nuggets that you've been walking past every single day. Yeah, I think that's so powerful. I mean, there's a lot that we can access in plain sight, right? It's just like, it's right in front of us and it's obvious, but for some reason we don't think to tap into it just because we don't have the skill to observe it as it is. And one of my favorite games to do, um, <laughs> actually one of my mentors, he calls it uh, like, I think it's like, com- like company sex or something like that, where it's like you put two different ideas together and you're like, if they were to make a baby and it were to be a business, what would that business be? And that's basically like a creative exercise of, Let's figure out the similarities and the contributions of these two things to make one cohesive idea that's actually logical. And I think that's just, it's really fun to do, but it sounds like it's a very effective way of tapping into that creativity. Something that I like thinking about too, and I think creativity relates to this is more often than not, the best solution is a simple solution, right? It's, it's a very simple and kind of elegant way, you know, very easily understood by others. And what I love about that is it requires so much hard work and so much effort and thinking through these metaphors and this creative thinking in so many different ways to make it look so simple and to make it be so easy, you know? And I think, mm-hmm. I think that's a really cool part of this art, right? Is that you are trying to really distill these complex things and how they relate into the most simplified of forms. And creativity, of course, is one of the elements within that. And um, I, I love that idea. Okay, so beyond maybe that metaphor example and kind of like one of those exercises, maybe, you know, tapping into another one of the 16 diamonds and what else can we do to kind of gain this presence and mindfulness around creativity? I have a huge component part of my company where we do intercultural competency. So it really looks at your ability to interact and to adapt with people from their various backgrounds. Hmm. So creativity doesn't really happen in a vacuum. A lot of times, you know, we do have ideas, but ideas grow, ideas get vetted, ideas manifest. Really, we have that interaction. I say creativity a lot of times happens between the space of the heads, you know, because Mm. these ideas come out. And the intercultural creativity aspect is huge, especially now that we are, you and and I, you know, we're on Zoom, you could have done this with someone who's in Africa. But now that we're a global society, even more this year than we even were last year, that has really stepped up the importance of the cultural connection. And the reason why culturally connected people are a little bit more, more creative is because within culture, and I'm talking about ethnic culture because there's t- different types of cult- culture, right? Well, within culture, you have your perspectives, right? Your perspective agility. Cultures have, you know, different games. I just saw a TED talk where she was talking about like, how does language shape your culture? Which the basic thing is, how does language shape your creativity? There's some cultures who say, how are you doing? By saying, which way are you going? So they're always aware of North, South, East, and West, right? Mm. There's some languages that they look at the color spectrum different. It's within the language. So if you're looking at color spectrum different, that's how you're engaging with stimuli. That's going to affect your ability to create in one of your observational tools. So all of this is connected. So if you have an issue... 
<laughs> with really reaching out and really connecting with people from various backgrounds, that is stunting your own creativity. And mm. as you know, 2020 has also been a year of talking about a lot of racial issues and a lot of equity-ish issues. And a lot of that has been brought to the forefront. And I'm just telling folks, DEI work, the diversity and inclusion work is important for people in our humanity, uh, but it's also important for people in our creativity because people who shut other people out because of these observational diff differences, you're shutting out the development of ideas. So you and I coming together, completely different backgrounds, completely different genders, cultures, um, you know, business and education, yet our ideas kind of like what you're saying, coming together to have make a baby, <laughs> right? Like you and I can, can think about such great things because we're coming at this from different experiences you know there's there's not another brian ford on this planet who has the exact same experience as you have there's not another janine and so we need to value that in people and see how it affects our financial output as well as just the growth of connecting and empathy and compassion mm -hmm. i love it i love that you mentioned the word diversity because that's what came to mind is just, and that's something when you talk about team building and teamwork, you know, what, if you want a team to be, be more creative, then you need the diversity in background there too, because then people are approaching the same problem from different angles. And with that input, then you can create that, that co-created, that multiple perspective solution, which is probably better fit. And that's, that's such a, a tool to teamwork because sure, things might go slower because people need to share their perspectives, but ultimately there are more perspectives on the table, which allow for the solution to be more comprehensive. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think you, that's a, a huge tactic. When you look at the word advantage, right? Everyone wants an advantage, right? But look at the word advantage. It has the word vantage in it. So a person who has more vantage points to a situation, they have the advantage. So, and you also want to be careful about just, you know, throwing people of diverse backgrounds together without equipping them with the tools to really work together. And so I, you know, my company does the IDI assessments, which is the intercultural competency um, assessment. So people can see where they are on the continuum of how do I really relate to people of other cultures, you know, and there's a continuum, you know, that you can really rate yourself. And if I'm at here on the continuum, what things can I do to increase my ability to connect with people, to see where they're seeing, to have good behave behaviors, to respond to their behaviors. So there's so much there and I love it. And it's just great work. And I'm so glad that I'm at where I'm right now to get ready for this wave of where companies will need this information. Absolutely. No, that's a, it's a huge point. And I, <laughs> that was just a huge lesson about advantage. Like that is such a, that's so true. And it's, it's something that, yes, it's an advantage, but right when people have the right tools, you know, people need to be willing to receive it. People need to be non-judgmental, non-critical and ready to receive it. And I think that's mm -hmm. the first step in, you know, kind of cultivating that team creativity is making sure that everyone's open-minded and approaching the relationships together. That's fantastic. Cool. Janine. All right. To wrap this up, I love kind of, I love ending the conversations with one nugget or tidbit or something that relates to, you know, kind of the core theme of the conversation or something that really needs to hit home as a thought that people need to understand, whether it's related to creativity or financial literacy or the intersection of the two, you know, what, what would you encourage people to really understand about this topic? That 2020 is a year of shifting. So if you're going to shift well, shift in your creativity because everything springs out 
from it, really taking time to understand how you are creative and how you can contribute. Because in the end, your creativity is really all you have. I just, I just did a, a live where I talked about my father passing away and you go to their house, you put everything in their box, but he wrote a book and that is his gift to the world. That came from his ideas, that's his name. No one can take that away from him. So, you know, I don't want people to like be somber and thinking about when they pass away. But when you leave this earth, the one thing you have to give us is what you created. What thing has your name on it? And so this is a great time to think about that as we move forward and get ready for 2021. What are you creating? What are you giving us? We need your diamonds. And we're ready for them now. Whew, brilliant. Janine, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate you making the time. And I love the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. I had a great time. That was Janine Letford. Janine's expertise exists at the intersection of financial literacy and creativity. And we touched on a lot of that in this conversation. We talked about how many people have a blind faith in educational institutions and overlook the financial consequences of their decisions as well as about the nature of creativity and how it requires diversity, perspective, and observation. There's a lot more to learn about Janine and her work, and I encourage you to check out her website, www.janineletford.com. Janine is spelled G-E-N-E-I-N, Letford, L-E-T-F-O-R-D. She's also got a great podcast called the Create and Grow Rich Podcast, and I encourage you to check that out as well. That's it for today. Keep at it. I see you working hard pursuing your potential, and I acknowledge you. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time on Self-Improvement Daily.